We're in Ezra chapter 10. In fact, we finished this fantastic book this morning. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 44. The topic we find there, the Israelites who married pagan women, they're told they must divorce them. The title of our message, The Worst Wives Club. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate the time we've spent thus far fellowshipping and worshiping and fellowshipping again. And now we want to fellowship with you through your word as the Holy Spirit takes it and teaches us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Amen. If he were ministering today, I think the Apostle Paul would have been comfortable quoting from movies and television. He often quoted from popular literature. When preaching the gospel to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, Paul said, for in him we live, we move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. The first part of that comes from Credica by Epimenides, and the second part from Hymn to Zeus, written by the Sicilian poet Aratus. They were directed at Zeus in Greek literature, but Paul applied them to our creator. Paul uses at least six such secular quotes on Mars Hill alone. There are at least 21 secular quotes scattered in Paul's epistles. My favorite, again quoting Epimenides, Cretans are always liars, Titus 1.12. Note in passing, Epimenides was a Cretan, which given rise in philosophy to what they call the Epimenides paradox. If somebody says Cretans are always liars and they're a Cretan, are they lying? Not too many people are reading Epimenides today. Anybody? Better not. But they are going to see Captain Marvel. Some memorable quotes come from the untouchables. One in particular is useful for our reading of Ezra chapter 10. Jim Malone is a tough Irish beat cop. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Played by the very Scottish sounding Sean Connery. It's not as weird as his Scottish accent in The Hunt for Red October. In which he plays a Russian sub commander without apology. Malone asks Elliot Ness, what are you prepared to do? And then he laid it out for him. I would do my Scottish uh, accent, but it sounds Hispanic, and that would be weird. (laughs) I try and do accents, and they all sound the same. He says, you want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. Now, do you want to do that? Are you ready to do that? Ness and his squad would need to make a total commitment to their task. Each of the men involved would need to ask themselves, am I ready to do that? The Israelites have an am I ready to do that moment in our text. Those who sinned by marrying foreigners were told they must divorce their Gentile spouses. Total commitment to God demanded it. When you and I encounter God's living word, it asks us for a total commitment to whatever task is being addressed. We should ask rhetorically, Am I ready to do that? Because we should be. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, be ready to renew your commitment to Jesus. And number two, be ready to resume your commitment to Jesus. Let's take a look at renewing in verses one through six. Now, let me say this to avoid confusion from the outset. This chapter does not address the subject of divorce and remarriage. The divorcing of these Gentile wives is a unique situation No precedent is set here, not even for Israel. I can say that because a little later on in this second temple story, 
Nehemiah is going to encounter this same problem. He doesn't apply Ezra's dissolution solution. Nehemiah acts only to stop any future intermarriages from occurring. And so no precedent is set. This is not a teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Now, in the church age in which we live, believers find themselves married to non-believers. In Corinth, the believers, some of them at least, thought that they should divorce their spouses. Paul addressed this for them and for all subsequent believers like ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, and I quote, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in those cases. That's the law of love we are to obey. Ezra 10, not a marriage study and should never be referenced in marriage studies. It is a standalone episode. And so verse 1, now while Ezra was praying... And while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Ezra had been informed that there were those in Israel who had intermarried with foreign women. Besides being against the law of Moses, it would lead Israel into idolatry as they mixed the worship of foreign gods with the worship of Jehovah. Ezra had torn his clothes and pulled out his hair, and now he was praying for the nation. A large group assembled with him, showing their support with tears. In the book of Romans, we are told to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When someone is grieving, tears are better than talk. Be present in grief, only suggest answers if asked, even then tread lightly. Uh, Your presence is more valuable than your words, I guess is another way of saying that. Verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trans, uh, trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. One man spoke up, and as we'll see in verse 3, he seems to have a supernatural word of wisdom. Even though the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell Old Testament believers like he indwells us, He was active in bestowing gifts upon them, and this is going to be a word of wisdom from him on how to address the situation. They're in an absolutely unique situation, and they need to figure it out, and so God is going to give them a word of wisdom. The hope Shechaniah trusted in is recognition of God's grace and mercy. He had not yet acted in discipline against his disobedient people. His long-suffering waited for them to repent and thereby renew their commitment to him. And so this intermarriage had been going on for some time, but there was hope that God would uh, turn away any wrath if they could deal with it before uh, that happened. So verse 3, here's the word of wisdom. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of all those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Put away means divorce. In the book of Deuteronomy, it is used of divorcing your wife and giving her a certificate of divorce that indicated she had not been unfaithful and had done nothing wrong. These wives and children would not have any stigma attached to them. Still, this was radical, and divorce is always devastating. How could this be right since God hates divorce? Well, this isn't necessarily the reason why. We're not given a reason, but let me point out something. 
intermarriage to foreigners put the nation in jeopardy of extinction. Think of what that might mean. There would be no line through which the Messiah could be born to be the savior of the world. And so the stakes are very high. And so you have to factor in a lot of things into this episode. And one of them was that back in the Garden of Eden, God promised that through the seed of a particular woman, the Messiah would come. And that woman later on is identified as a Jewish woman coming from the nation of Israel. And there are all of these efforts and attempts by Satan throughout the Old Testament to pollute the uh, genealogy of the human race and especially of Israel. And this is a move, if left unchecked, that could actually cause certain tribes in Israel to go extinct. Uh, and, And that just couldn't happen. And so something had to be done, something radical. Verse four, arise for this matter is your responsibility. We are with you, be of good courage and do it. And so it fell to Ezra to make things right. He was the the leader, the spiritual leader at this time. It helped tremendously that Israel was with him, but it was his responsibility to put things in motion and to see them through. I'll develop this more in a moment, but note that if you are in Christ, you too have certain responsibilities to minister to folks depending upon your relationships. Uh, and maybe this is, will simplify it. If you're in a relationship with somebody at any level, then you might have a responsibility to minister to them when something comes up in conversation or in their life or whatever. It's not the responsibility of some other Christian to come in, uh, but God has put you there so that you can uh, minister the grace of God. And whatever you know about God, I keep, I, I've told you this for years, whatever you know about God, it's enough for you to be saved so it's enough for someone else to be saved and to be ministered to. And so don't sell yourself short, and uh, certainly you can trust on the Holy Spirit. He can give a word of wisdom. People ask you a question, you have no idea what the answer is, but the Holy Spirit can speak to you at that moment and probably remind you that that's not their real question anyway, and you can just address what's going on spiritually. So, so be confident in uh, your relationship with Christ. Verse five, then Ezra rose And made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word, so they swore an oath. It's okay to swear on the Bible in court. It's okay to exchange wedding vows. In fact, it's better than okay. It's necessary. We're not to be oath-free. When Jesus warned us about swearing oaths in the New Testament, it was about swearing foolish oaths. And so there are many vows and oaths that were allowed in the Old Testament, I'd recommend just in daily speech that we don't use terms like I swear or my favorite, to be honest with you. I say it, you probably say it. If you say it a lot, you might want to quit because it indicates to me that you've been a liar until that moment. <laughs> well, Gene, to be honest with you, wait, time out. Are we starting now? Is this, is this where, you know, have you perjured yourself up to this point or what? So, so oaths are okay, but don't overdo it. So then Ezra rose uh, from being before the house of God went into the chamber of Jehoanan, or whoever it was, the son of Elishib, and when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. Did Ezra go on a total fast? Well, it might be better to say that he just had no appetite on account of his grief. Most of you, maybe all of you have been there at some point in your life. You're just so overwhelmed with grief, a death or some tragedy that the last thing in the world you can think about doing is eating. In fact, people have to encourage you to eat to keep your strength up or drink a little water so you don't get dehydrated. And so that's what's happening with Ezra. He is shaping up to be one of the great grievers in the Bible. 
In chapter 9, as I said, he tore out his own hair, unique among the Bible grievers. His withdrawal and loss of appetite are consistent with uh, this total feeling of grief that he had. If you watch any true crime TV shows like 48 Hours, there's always the detective who comments, the husband wasn't grieving like you'd expect. And thus he becomes the number one suspect. And so sometimes the husband is too nonchalant. He's sucking on a hamburger uh, or eating a hamburger and sucking on a shake, you know, while they're delivering this news. And he didn't seem to be in enough grief. Sometimes they over grieve. I thought that he really laid it on thick. And I'm thinking, what is normal for grieving? I think I told you last week as a chaplain and as a pastor, I've seen a lot of grief over the years and people are all over the, uh, the board. And I don't think I've ever thought that, well, I think everybody's grief can be weird. I, I don't think I've ever thought that somebody was faking it, you know, or anything like that. And so I'm kind of a, more of a, like some of you, more of a matter of fact, kind of, you know, just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing. I know that I'm not gonna grieve as much as they think I should. And so I'm thinking I should practice grieving. Find that middle ground so that I'm not a suspect when it happens, when it all goes down. I'm thinking pulling out my hair might be a little bit extreme, but I, you know, maybe I could twirl my hair and they'll think I've gone crazy. I don't know. But it's true. Watch those shows. You maybe have never noticed this, but there, there's always that comment. Sometimes it's a family member. Didn't seem like he was really crying very much about it, like he didn't even care. All right. I don't know how to grieve. You know who knew how to grieve? Ezra. And so if he is the standard, then we're all guilty of failing in our passion for God. Renew the commitment. That's what Shechaniah suggested. Renew, rededicate, return. Call it what you will. It's the realization you are not walking in obedience to God. Now, you may not be walking in sin. These people were. They had definitely broken the commandment of God. But you may not be walking in sin. It could be that you've just drifted a little or become a little dull of hearing. And this is why we don't always hear these messages. We think, well, certainly I have sin in my life like every Christian, but I'm not living in a habitual state of sin, and so really this isn't for me. But most of the time, it starts with a little drifting or a little dullness of hearing, and we need this kind of spiritual checkup to see where we're at. And so get with God, just you and him. Talk to him about your relationship and it's passion or maybe it's lack thereof and make sure that you haven't left your first love. Uh, second, be ready to resume your commitment to Jesus. A few years ago, there was a teaching going around that said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Remember that? How many of you remember that? Anybody? Act like you remember it. No, I'm just kidding. It was a very famous thing. Hey, even the guys teaching that cannot claim 100% lordship of Jesus in their lives without lying. And so this big teaching put a big burden on Christians. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And I, I immediately thought, well, I know he's not Lord of every area of your life because 1 John says that if we say we have no sin, we're liars. And, and you know, maybe while you're asleep, well, no, but then you dream. And so it's crazy. And, and so... The point I'm making right now is that whenever we talk about total commitment and discipleship, it tends to weigh on us like a heavy burden and not the way that it should. It shouldn't excite us uh, or it should excite us, not make us feel defeated. And so 
Um, we tend to think of total commitment in terms of Jesus' comments to the rich young ruler. Jesus told that young seeker, you remember the story, he said, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Now, it doesn't help that the Christian books on this subject all play on this fear that we're falling short. And to recover, we're told to follow the author's program, which eventually involves buying videos and merchandise that relate to his book. And so it, they've turned discipleship into a commercial enterprise. Uh, you, you know, we don't buy indulgences, but now we buy discipleship by going through programs. And so there's a, a heavy burden. So let's look at another New Testament story about total commitment. Jesus encountered a man possessed by a legion of demons. The Lord cast them out, restoring the demoniac. The man begged Jesus that he might be with him. The Lord said, and I quote, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus sent him home to work out his total commitment. While American Christianity can easily be criticized for its shallowness and love of comfort, I think most of the time Jesus sends us back home or back to work or back to school or back into our community. He doesn't necessarily tell us to, get, to divest ourselves of everything and go full missionary. He tells us, be a disciple where I've scattered you. And that's the way we're going to approach this. So we can read on excitedly rather than defeatedly. And so verse 7, and they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Apparently no division of church and state here. They were all one and that's true because Israel was meant to be a theocracy. That term was coined by the historian Josephus in the first century to describe the government of the Jews. It was unique uh, to describe this rule ordained by Moses in which God is sovereign and his word is law. And so verse 9, so all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord, God of your fathers. Do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. Fifteen seconds. That's how long it took me to read aloud that message in verses 10 and 11. Talk about a short sermon. These people had come from all over to hear what Ezra had to say about their situation and he said it, everything he needed to say, in 15 seconds. You know, most of the time, you can say more by saying less. And I would encourage you uh, to, to practice just in all areas of your life, try to say more by saying less. Any of us can be verbose and go on and on and on. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, my wife will tell me after the service in a nice way, she'll say, you said that five times. And the first time was enough. We're not stupid. And so, so I've learned that that was great advice, you know, and so because why say the same thing over and over and over again to hammer it home? Trust that the people are smart. And, and so uh, now my sermons are longer than 15 seconds because I'm not as smart as I could be, but they're only around 30 minutes, I think you've noticed. 
Uh, I always have this argument with my pastor friends. Once a year, I start the argument. I say, hey, how long are you guys teaching for? And some of the guys, you know, they say, well, I teach for an hour and 15 minutes because my people love the Bible. And then I'll write back and say, I wouldn't listen to myself for an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> There's maybe three guys on the planet that I would listen to for an hour and 15 minutes, no matter how interesting they are. I said, so if you can't say what you need to say in 30 minutes, around 30 minutes, H.A. Ironside, Charles Spurgeon, all of these great preachers, uh, they, could, they could put together a message in 30 minutes. So now, you know, I'm not criticizing people, <coughs> yes, I am, who talk longer than that, uh, but say a lot by saying less. Verse 12, then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, we must do. But there are many people, it's the season for heavy rain, we're not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. It seems Ezra wanted to deal with the transgressors right then. It was impractical. Ministry need not be purposely impractical or difficult. Sometimes you feel like if you make things a little difficult, it proves a person's commitment. You, know, you want to make them sacrifice a little. Um, I think just the opposite. You, we should do our best to make ministry accessible to people so that they're ministered to, not make unnecessary obstacles. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. These guys might have opposed the divorce solution itself. At least one of them, Meshulam, is listed later in the text as being a transgressor. More likely, they opposed the waiting. They were like folks in Riverdale who wanted to get her done. Verse 16, then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the 10th month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. I love it when a plan comes together. It began 11 days after this assembly, and it took three months to complete. Good thing they didn't try to do it in that one-day thunderstorm, you know, rainstorm. So they, they did it in an orderly way. And even though it would be obvious you were guilty, each case was heard individually, so there would be no uh, question of prejudice or favoritism. Nothing is said about what happened to the divorced wives, but as I suggested earlier, the language can indicate they were given certificates of divorce to eliminate any stigma. They had done nothing wrong, really, uh, and so they would be able to return to their own land uh, and uh, remarry, I suppose, or whatever the particular laws of their culture were. Now, this is all speculation on my part, so take it that way. It's interesting to note that nothing is said about any conversion to Judaism. Were there not some that might have saved the family? I mean, conversions to Judaism were not only allowed, they were encouraged. There are many stories in the Old Testament about Gentiles coming into the family of Israel. Rahab, the harlot, for one, and there were others. And so it would seem that even though this decree went out that we're going to have to separate from your foreign wife, if the wife were to say, I happily proselytize and become a Jew and get rid of my foreign gods, it seemed like it could have saved the family. Again, I'm speculating, but the fact that the, 
were not told anything like that happened might show just how pagan these individuals were. Uh, you know, the, the thing that was happening was that, hey, I, I like my gods. I'm worshiping my gods, and I'm not going to give them up for you. Just something to think about. There are a ton of potential baby or pet names for you to consider from here through verse 43. I'm not going to even try to do that. Uh, it's not just boring. It would it'd be painful. I do want to point out that the number of those guilty of intermarriage turned out to be relatively few. Commentators count 113 people, I think. All that fuss over about 100 people? Well, yeah, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, especially since many of those involved were leaders. In Christ, we ought to be intolerant of sin in our midst. And by that, I mean we should deal with it. We should go to the person lovingly and seek their repentance and their restoration to fellowship. Certainly, we ought to decry sin in society in general. We should preach righteousness to society. But judgment should begin in the house of God, meaning we should have our own house in order. Let me give you an example. I hope you'll understand it. For decades, the church has rightfully decried the sin of homosexuality. Sadly, other sexual sins among heterosexuals like fornication and adultery, they've become almost commonplace, or at least they don't, they don't elicit the same kind of anger and, and righteous anger that homosexuality does, and yet I prefer to think of them all as just sexual sins, and so uh, you know, we don't see a big outcry against fornication, sex before marriage or outside of marriage or adultery. It, and, you know, I, I think we still recognize that it's sinful, but it's certainly not on a par with these other things. And all I'm saying is that sin is sin. Judgment begins in the house of God. We can't preach to society until we preach to ourselves. So let's skip to verse 44. One page, two pages, three pages. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. That's it, the totally abrupt ending of the book of Ezra. It punctuates the need for total commitment in order to get to a place of resuming your walk with the Lord. Now, earlier we contrasted the rich young ruler and the demoniac of the Gadarenes. One day, you might have a rich young ruler experience. Jesus may call upon you to go way beyond your normal living sacrifice. He may call upon you to be truly radical. Are you ready to do that? Every day, Jesus is calling upon you to be a living sacrifice in all your walks of life, home, school, job, church. You're to walk as Jesus walked and be his disciple. Are you ready to do that? Here's a scenario to consider uh, again, in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Paul didn't mean it was wrong or sinful to get married. After all, some of the finest biblical teaching on marriage comes from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians uh, is a good example of this. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Then he goes on to talk about parents and, and so Paul is not anti-marriage. He's not saying marriage is less spiritual than singleness. He encouraged remaining single because if you choose marriage, it has certain responsibilities. Uh, in premarital counseling, one of the things I would say to a, the lady, uh, the gal, is that, hey, right now you have no biblical responsibility to submit in a unique way to this man. 
We all are submitted one to another as Christians, as brothers and sisters, but you have no reason to submit to him. But once you get married, that becomes a new responsibility in your life that you didn't have 10 minutes ago. You're to submit to your husband as unto the Lord in a unique and special way. And of course, same thing works for the husband, but that's the idea that if you're single, you don't have that responsibility. If you're married, you do. And so Jesus may not, and in fact, he's probably not calling you to remain single, to sell everything and go full missionary, but he has called you to go home and to love your wife as Jesus loves you and to submit to your husband as unto the Lord and to obey your parents, to go to work and be a good employee or a good employer, to go to school and represent him, all of those things. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth, but you do need to be a disciple where you're scattered. You can do all those things through Christ. Are you ready to do that? Then return to your own house or your church or your job or your school and tell what great things God has done for you. Let's pray.